You are listening to the USA Learning Lab podcast. I'm your host, Amy Leo. In fall 2016, USAID updated its operational policy to reflect its commitment to organizational learning. So how is USAID learning, and why does learning matter? In this episode, we're focusing on learning at the project and organizational levels. If you are tuning in for the first time and the concept of collaborating, learning, and adapting is new to you, listen to our first episode for a good introduction. There has been a trend um, in recent years to shift the focus of monitoring and evaluation away from being solely on accountability and more towards a balance between accountability and learning. I'm Kristen Lindell, the Monitoring, Evaluation, Research, and Learning Specialist on the USAID LEARN contract. Kristen, what do we mean by learning? Learning happens when we reflect on evidence that's available to us, um, both from the technical evidence base and also from data that we collect. And learning is also connected inherently to adapting because the idea is that you take what you learn and incorporate it into your day-to-day work so that you actually manage adaptively. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between monitoring, evaluation, and learning on a USAID contract and what that looks like? For LEARN, an example that we have of how learning and also adapting um, work for us is we host something called a Reflection Friday where we sit together with our team and we talk about data from our key performance metrics and we have a participatory discussion around three key questions. So first of all, what do these data mean to us? And secondly, based on the data, what should we keep doing? And thirdly, what should we change or stop? And from these conversations, each of the work streams on LEARN writes down some key action steps so that they can actually take what they've learned from the reflection session and incorporate it into their work. Learning for better development results means reflecting on available data to make real-time programmatic adaptations. First, we'll look into learning at the project level as I speak with someone who is using mobile communication technology to inform program management decisions in Somalia. And next, I'll discuss a tool used throughout USAID for intentional and systematic learning at the organizational level. Last, USAID Learning Lab members will share why learning matters to them. But first, here's our first ever USAID Learning Lab podcast commercial break. Do you collaborate, learn, and adapt in your work? We want to hear about it. Enter the annual CLA case competition. We're looking for real-life case studies describing how USAID staff and implementing partners are using CLA in their work. This is not a call for traditional success stories. We want to hear what's working well, what you're struggling with, and what you've learned along the way. It can be about something big or about one small practice that made an important difference to your work. The competition is open to all types of individuals and organizations working with USAID. Your case submission will showcase your team's innovation and expertise. All eligible cases will be featured on USAID Learning Lab, and the top five will win expense-paid travel to present their case at a CLA event in Washington, D.C. You can submit starting on Monday, May 1st, and the final deadline is Friday, June 16th. Visit USAID Learning Lab for more information.
Nathan Morrow's case on resilience learning in Somalia was a finalist in the 2016 CLA case competition. I recently spoke with him to hear more about how learning was written into the project's design and how it informed programmatic decisions. You'll hear an echo because our conversation happened on the phone. My name is Nathan Morrow, and I'm an associate research professor at Tulane University down in New Orleans. And I am a principal investigator on two resilience projects in Somalia. While Somalia has been in crisis for several decades, USAID wanted to experiment with resilience programming to determine what would work in a context like Somalia's. For those unfamiliar with the term, resilience is defined as a community's ability to mitigate, adapt to, and recover from shocks and stresses in a matter that reduces chronic vulnerability and facilitates inclusive growth. Nathan explains. The programmers and academics really thought you can't do resilience-type programming when there's an active conflict going on. It's important to remember that Somalia has been um, receiving sort of emergency humanitarian aid and a cycle of conflict and drought and other issues for more than 25 years. So entire generations of communities, but then also of your uh, community-based organizations and your international implementing partners have known nothing but uh, humanitarian handouts. And so there were a lot of questions about whether or not resilience could be done in these settings. You know, there was basic, basic learning here, basic research, basic evidence that had to be collected. Tulane University's role in this project is to capture learning about what works and what doesn't when it comes to building resilience in a crisis context. We at Tulane uh, act as the, as the learning partners. So our job is collaborating with the implementing teams on their learning throughout the project so that they can adapt their work um, to both Somalia and then the changing context in Somalia that usually includes conflicts and cycles of drought and things like that. To facilitate learning about resilience, the project uses live call mobile phone surveys to gather household and community level information about the changing context, needs, and experience on the ground. Nathan explains why the program was designed to use mobile technology for data collection. So the interesting thing about Somalia is that even the most sort of recent data from the World Bank showed that there was 50% access to mobile phones uh, across Somalia. And the baselines that we did in our areas showed 80% or more phone ownership. And then people were borrowing each other's phones. Anyway, mobile phones are very much part of the culture in the communities that we were working. And so one of the strategies was to meet people where they were in terms of uh, the types of communication they were already using. It, it was set up that these calls would happen before uh, biannual reflection sessions. And so we would do a set of calls and then we would, we would summarize that data and that would form the basis of the reflection sessions with the community leaders and the, and the community committees. He also shared an interesting observation about the role of relationship building and how data collection by program staff informed real-time information exchange and decision-making. The implementing team were the ones doing the calls. So they already knew the people. It was a rapport. It was a check-in. Um, and though there was a standard form of questions they were asking, they were also able to give information. Um, for instance, in the latest round, they gave information about services that were being offered by the uh, Red Crescent Society of uh, Somalia on nutrition and how to access them or other information about when different activities were, were planned or if there were any delays in the implementation of the activities. And so um, the implementing um, uh, personnel uh, and partners were actually, uh, it was interesting because the, it was, they got to discuss the results 
across the different communities and update their plans um, based on these on these phone call, on these regular phone calls. And in all of Somalia, uh, not every partner of USAID is directly implementing. Sometimes they're using uh, local NGOs, so it would, might be a little bit different. But in the case of CARE, um, the staff from CARE were doing the phone calls, doing the monitoring, and doing the implementation of the projects. And so that led to a very immediate cycle. I asked Nathan for examples of project adaptations that resulted from learning from mobile phone panels. The implementing teams from CARE identified that there was uh, high uh, levels of diarrhea um, being reported as one of the challenges in the in the panel data sets. And so they were able to uh, go into CARE's archive and find good information um, and, you know, translate it into Somali on that. Uh, another one was with animal deaths or um, some other unusual incidents. Um, the, the, the implementing partners reported doing an extra visit to go check out what was happening in those communities and trying to uh, adjust their activities as well. Another key project adaptation was driven by the community and happened through a mechanism called Cash for Work. Here's Nathan's explanation of how Cash for Work works. So usually during a humanitarian response, uh, food is given freely based on need. And so there's no requirement or targeting. Every family gets the same ration. Um, but as you move into rehabilitation, often um, there's some uh, restriction in the resources you have. And you have to um, identify the families that are most in need to be the priority recipients of the food aid. And so there's a long tradition of food for work that comes out of the late 70s. It was big in the 80s. But more recently, for the la many donors, have started uh, providing those uh, resources in cash, and that's where the term cash for work comes from. And here's how savings from cash for work led to other resilience activities. They had a budget set aside for the community to do a rangeland uh, rehabilitation with, with uh, some cash for work, so you know, restoring gullies and this type of thing, protecting grasslands or protecting water sources. Um, and what they did is they took that money uh, and often um, at the same time started uh, village savings and loans groups. And so uh, the people who were getting uh, a cash income were also participating in the savings groups. And it was amazing how quickly, and we saw this across the learning from uh, the different projects in Somalia, um, that the savings really do add up quite quickly. <laughs> and so um, the, the, the groups... Um, could start implementing projects they were interested in. And one of the things that, that they did is they took the money from rangeland rehabilitation and, re and rehabilitated their drinking sources. I asked Nathan what the team has learned about resilience through their ongoing work in Somalia. We really saw a shift in, in, uh, in the participation and, it, and in the agency of these communities to take on um, the programming for problems that were relevant to them. And really, it was the, um, the basis of learning, which for me in this context is the participatory production and exchange of information within the community, but between communities and between the community and the implementing partner, that really led to the shift in thinking about resilience. And I think that's a huge learning. So one thing I think we can say is that it is possible for these programs to be implemented in conflict-affected areas, which is new. That's brand new. Mm -hmm. Also, the importance of the sequencing and layering. I think the second point um, that we really learned is that depending on the context, the history, the communities, 
timing is everything. And so the way that you sequence activities and link and integrate these different activities, like the, you know, at the very beginning, starting these savings groups, um, having some sort of, you know, immediate economic benefit brings people together, brings them in. They see things are changing. They, they, their empowerment and economic outcomes are so closely linked in these activities. And as soon as people start seeing results, um, the rest of the programming really falls together. Um, I think that high-frequency uh, monitoring, especially on uh, mobile phones, is the future of monitoring uh, for development emergency resilience projects. I just think that it's a, a brand new way to identify trends. Trends are, um, and the repeated data are very important for implementing partners. Um, if you look at our project, even these projects, our baseline didn't come in until the end of year two. And so if we had waited for the, the core large baseline to come in, our implementing partners would have had no information for almost two years of their, implement, of their implementation. Um, but what we um, were able to do with the, with the phone monitoring and then the smaller local baselines was engage right away with evidence base and, and then provide trends and changes. And it was a change in information that drove the adaptation of the programming and the adaptation of the plans at community level. So high frequency is where it's at. I think that's where we're going. And that's one thing I actually received today just in the mail um, is that USAID is taking this model now and scaling it up to all of their Somalia programming um, and immediately actually starting this summer for the drought. So what were some of the outcomes of Nathan's program? It turns out it's having a ripple effect throughout Somalia. The savings clubs, for instance, um, were able to generate enough of a, of, of a resource in these communities that they were able to help other communities. So we saw some communities that were, um, were actually uh, saving enough money from their cash for work and, and other small savings that when a flood happened in a neighboring community, they were able to help them. And we saw that again in another community, helping out IDPs, newly arrived IDPs, to get, uh, to get you know, their camp set up and, and help them with food. And it really just restores the faith in this type of, of programming that everything doesn't have to be a handout, that communities can really lead their own resilient development. I asked Nathan how things are going in Somalia right now. Uh, we are picking up in the panel uh, mobile phone surveys that there is a, a increased migration of both people and, and livestock, um, that this increased livestock mortality, um, though human deaths have not yet uh, been reported. Um, and we're also seeing that there's increased remittances and, and money coming in from diasporas, new NGOs, and actually the government also giving response. So in real time, we're capturing a lot of the trends that are happening right now um, as the drought is deepening and getting worse in the area. Um, that's allowing um, our teams to work with, uh, with USAID um, and work with their own internal resources to move, um, you know, to, to not just go on with training or whatever they had scheduled, um, but to really move that to more cash for work activities to get more money in people's pockets at this time when they need to protect their assets and things like that. Um, and the other part is this two-way communication is just happening naturally um, where um, these, this regular regularization of the interaction of the monitoring system with the regular calls with the panels um, is allowing uh, for a, a real two-way communication about what other services, what other options, what other solutions are, are out there, um, and particularly uh, linking up the communities with, uh, with uh, 
services from uh, the Red Crescent or from the government that they might not have known about. So um, I think we're seeing that uh, what we hoped for about establishing these, um, these networks, these connections, um, and, and sort of a deep understanding about what those, uh, learning about those root causes of vulnerability in the communities um, may be paying off. I mean, these are initial signs. We're not, we're not sure about it. Um, but, it, but it seems to be strengthening the, the exchange of information and exchange of learning at community level that we're hoping will, uh, will help during this difficult time with the, with the onset of the drought. So now that we've looked at learning at the project level, we'll turn to learning at the organizational level. My colleagues Matthew Baker and Laura Ahern recently completed a landscape analysis of the use of one type of learning tool, learning agendas, throughout USAID. I'm Laura Ahern. I am a Senior Monitoring, Evaluation, Research, and Learning Specialist on the USAID Learn contract. I'm Matthew Baker and I'm uh, the Monitoring, Evaluation, Research, and Learning Specialist here on the Learn contract. Here's Laura's definition of a learning agenda. So a learning agenda is a set of questions that relate to the work that an agency does um, and that, when answered, help that agency work better, more effectively. While you may not have heard of them before, learning agendas aren't anything new. The term learning agenda actually first was referenced by the Harvard Business Review back in 1965. It was originally uh, associated with an individualized learning plan. This is how I understand learning agendas. It's kind of like the process of buying a car. You may have a sense of what you want, but you need to do research to make an informed decision. You would think about how you plan to use the car and what features you'd need, and things like gas mileage and financing options. You'd probably consult friends and family for recommendations and even test drive some cars. The next time you buy a car, you'd ask even better questions because you'd base them on your experience with your current car. Maybe you love the make and model of your car and want to buy the exact same one again. Or maybe your car had maintenance issues that you'd like to avoid next time. So learning agendas ask, what do we already know? What don't we know? What have other people done? What's worked for them and what hasn't? These questions are often iterative and refined based on new information and experience. So given this, I asked Laura and Matt why and how organizations use learning agendas. It mainly allows an organization or an office to be more strategic about the learning that it does. A lot of organizations have been engaging in evaluations, program evaluations for a good number of years now. Um, but I think what many have found is that um, a final report is written and then it sits on the shelf and it never really makes its way into um, the, the process of programming in the future, either um, influencing decision making or fixing programs that are already underway. And um, as organizations realize this, I think uh, they've tried to be more strategic about which programs are actually evaluated. Um, and then what other kinds of learning activities can be undertaken, research or experiential learning, all kinds of other kinds of learning opportunities, and then taking all of those findings and putting them in formats that actually um, can be applied. What motivated your study of how USAID is using learning agendas? Our learning agenda was motivated by the desire of USAID's Bureau for Policy, Planning and Learning to explore developing their own learning agenda. Before developing their own learning agenda, they wanted to understand what learning agendas were already present within USAID and also within um, other federal agencies um, and use that information to inform their own decision-making processes. So 
actually the, the desire was to actually learn from what had already taken place. The process involved interviewing 60 individuals from 20 offices in USAID Washington, plus uh, people at five different federal agencies um, elsewhere in the government. Um, and we uh, convened a couple of focus groups as well, and also reviewed 37 documents that were related to the learning agendas that different offices and operating units had uh, created. Matt, what were some of the pertinent findings of your study on how USAID is using learning agendas? Sure. So we found uh, 17 learning agendas, um, and we focused um, on analyzing ones that were uh, focused on the office or bureau level, and there were six of these. Um, in addition, there was one that focused on a project level learning agenda. With the remaining 10 of the 17 uh learning agendas that were basically new or nascent and so in varying different stages of formulation and, and development. In terms of the top line findings, um, often there was a heavy focus on uh, creating linkages between the learning agenda itself and other strategic uh, objectives and uh, policy goals. There was also a focus on um, the importance of cultivating and creating leadership support. Uh, that was due to uh, one of the challenges identified by the report, which is around staffing, time, and resources that were required to actually bring these learning agendas uh, to completion. We also found that uh, people uh, appreciated the uh, opportunity it gave them to be consultative and that the most successful learning agendas involved um, quite a bit of participation, consulting with various groups of stakeholders right from the start and thinking right, also right from the start about what uses the learning agenda would be put to, um, what decisions would be influenced, and then therefore what which stakeholders needed to be involved throughout the process from beginning to end. The last point is uh, that learning agenda efforts often benefited from the, the ability to collect other types of evidence beyond formal research um, and evaluations, and that included experiential learning. And that was another key um, kind of modality of knowledge that the learning agendas were able to leverage and harness in their work. What does experiential learning look like? So often that included the sharing of actual practical experiences of doing the work uh, what, and then thinking through what actually factors were influenced in making that work successful or not. And often these are things that um, are not necessarily captured in a formal evaluation, sometimes due to the sensitivity of the information, sometimes just because a lot of it's heavily couched in context. And so uh, bringing together stakeholders who are working on similar types of areas and issues and who have had years of experience of doing that work, maybe in different types of countries or in different types of sectors. Many of these groups that uh, embarked on learning agenda processes realized as they went along that it was important also to return and, and reconsider iteratively the process itself, um, the questions, the activities, the findings. And so many talked about wanting to create a living document, a living process um, that would be revisited and would continue to um, inform their learning efforts uh, as they went forward. Can you share an example of one of the learning agendas you found in use within USAID? The Forestry and Biodiversity Office engaged in a lot of really interesting um, experiential learning and convenings as part of their cross-mission learning agenda that focused on conservation enterprises. 
Um, they uh, brought people together from different missions around um, activities that were similar and that all shared a similar theory of change. They're now working on a learning agenda related to uh, wildlife trafficking. The Biodiversity Cross-Mission Learning Program was actually one of the winners of the 2015 CLA Case Competition. If you're interested in learning more about it, check out the video on USAID Learning Lab. Laura, why do you think learning matters for an agency like USAID? I think one of the interesting things that we found was that these efforts are bubbling up from the units themselves. Um, and we also have heard that that's true uh, outside of the agency, elsewhere in the government, as well as among our implementing partners and other organizations, even in the private sector, that people are realizing that the benefit of thinking strategically about an office's or bureau's or organization's learning activities can lead to people not only doing their work better, but being more engaged in their work and then having a sense of continuous learning and continuous improvement um, throughout the organization. It sounds very antithetical to what we usually think about when we think about government work. We usually think of it being, you know, slow and bureaucratic, but it sounds like what you're describing is that there's a lot of dynamism there, that people are really looking to build on what they, they're doing, what others have done, and... Um, produce better results in the future. It's not stagnant. Absolutely. And while the learning is a key part of it, in order to learn effectively as an organization, really involves collaborating with all of the relevant groups of stakeholders and then applying the learning um, in an iterative fashion, learning from the application as well to the program decisions or policy decisions that the organization is making. So next time you're thinking about starting a new project, whether it's in the development context or if you're buying a new car, you might want to start by first developing a learning agenda. You can find Laura and Matt's research on learning agendas and tips for developing your own learning agenda on USA Learning Lab. When you create a profile on USA Learning Lab, there's a space to complete the sentence, learning matters because... Dot, dot, dot. In closing... Here are some of my colleagues from the USA Learn contract reading our favorite Learning Matters quotes. Learning matters because with learning comes understanding, and with understanding comes the confidence to construct and reconstruct. Stuart Bell. Learning matters because the progress of society is entirely dependent upon shared, collective learning. Jonathan Darling. Learning matters because human dignity requires doing our best, and we generally have no idea what that is. John Coonrod. Learning matters because blueprints do not work. Arnaldo Poini. Learning matters because context matters, and the circumstances under which we work keep changing due to social, economic, and environmental dynamics. Donald Kasongi. Learning matters because it's what we think we know that keeps us from growing. Jane Schuler. Learning matters because it is like turning on the lights when we enter a new room. Without learning, we stumble around in the dark, running into obstacles. When we learn, we find new vistas to explore. Marilyn Langfeld. Visit USA Learning Lab to find the resources mentioned in this episode and share your thoughts on learning by tweeting at USA Learning. 
David Ratliff is our CLA sensei. Thank you to Maciej Chamielewski, Kat Howe, Rena Nadler, Elliot Rao, Leah Kozier, Lucy Jan, Sarah Ganim, Ford Tordiff, Melissa Bevins, and Ian Lathrop for their contributions to this episode. Our music is by Paddington Bear. The USA Learning Lab podcast is a production of USA Learn, implemented by Dexas Consulting Group and its partner, International Resources Group, a subsidiary of RTI, on behalf of USAID's Office of Learning, Evaluation, and Research in the Bureau of Policy, Planning, and Learning. The opinions in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States government.